Buckingham Palace has announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. One of the biggest stories this month is the future of the crown. In the realm of religion, Queen Elizabeth held the title of Defender of the Faith and served as the Supreme Head of the Church of England. The morning traditions and burial rites will reflect her faith. It will be a service of remembrance, a Christian service reflecting the Queen's deep Christian faith. And it will be a very formal service. I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is Inspired by Interfaith Voices. After an unprecedented reign, Queen Elizabeth's demise renews debate about the legacy of the constitutional monarchy. There are questions about how many Commonwealth countries might drop the British monarch as their head of state now that Queen Elizabeth has died and Charles is in charge. This week, we begin in conversation with Dr. Shriya Nikita Gandhi. She's an assistant professor of religious studies at Michigan State University. She's also a historian who studies colonialism, empire building, and she's been watching the public reactions that reflect a mix of emotions. It's definitely not a one-size-fits-all narrative, and people are going to react differently based on their positionality and the ways in which the monarchy impacted their lives. She symbolizes a lot of the racism we faced, so for a lot of us, we're not mourning today. A country in the North Atlantic the size of Alabama that somehow took over the world and ruled it with decency unmatched by any empire in human history. Queen Elizabeth II was the last living link to a truly great Britain. For some people, it was positive, and for others, it was uh, wholly negative. So I think what you're seeing kind of unfold are these two kind of reactions. To Gandhi, the divergence of opinions and the reactions betray the power of an enduring supremacist belief system that was essential to empire building and one that makes many uncomfortable, which is where our conversation begins. You have one side saying, you know, you have to act in a certain way. There has to be decorum. Um, You have to be solemn. But a lot of those values of decorum and what is decorum and how one should act are also rooted in white supremacy. Explain that to me. How, How is it that decorum is rooted in white supremacy. So what I'm saying is white supremacy is not just um, a group of people who think that they are superior because they are white. White supremacy is a culture that is, um, is imbued in all of our institutions uh, and impacts everything from um, how we identify ourselves, not only as brown people, but how white people think of themselves. It impacts um, things like who gets loans and who doesn't, right, for banks. Uh, it impacts uh, things like the type of schooling you have access to and what gets taught in the curriculum versus uh, what gets left out. 
Um, and so white supremacy, well, the way I describe it to my students is like an iceberg. We see things like the KKK and lynching and hate crimes, but underneath it is all of this stuff that upholds those um, more visible parts of white supremacy. Things like uh, policing how people behave is a part of that lower part of the iceberg. When people are criticizing the empire, the legacy of colonialism in this time of mourning, I've seen lots of battling online of folks Mm -hmm. saying, wait, that's disrespectful. You shouldn't be dismissing or marginalizing the sadness people are feeling. And then the reaction saying, well, wait a minute, you want me to respect the mourning, but there's no acknowledgement of my suffering. And that's exactly it. That's right. You're the historian. You've got this in the front of your mind. (laughs) For those of us not actually deeply rooted in all that history or who may have forgotten it, uh, remind us, what what are you what are you referring to? Uh, So during World War Two, when, um, you know, the British were at war with uh, Germany and the other Axis powers, there were boats in the Bengal Harbor that could have brought food over to people who needed it. And Winston Churchill said no. Why did he say no? I think it was an issue of, you know, would there be supplies for other, for the for soldiers or, you know, he did not like Indians. Um, he thought we were less than, uh, which a lot of people at the time felt, but um I don't have a good, great answer as to why beyond uh, supply issues as well as just cruelty. So you had 3 million Bengalis die uh, as a result. And uh, now you have the queen lose her life. And are the rules of mourning the same? That They're not. I mean, so many um, mothers have lost their children because of British colonialism in so many different ways. You had the Mau Mau insurgency happen in the 1950s, I believe, in um, in Kenya, where um, so many Kenyan insurgents were put in concentration camps and killed for rebelling against um, the crown. And uh, so I guess what I'm trying to say is there are there are rules for mourning, fair enough, but are they... Uh, equitably distributed. So a Kenyan mother who lost her life, uh, we're not allowed to mourn for her in the same way that we mourn for the queen. And what separates the two of them is one benefits from white supremacy and one does not. Hmm. Um, And so oftentimes that argument of, oh, well, we're in a period of mourning and we should be respectful for people who are sad and uh, we should be respectful to the queen. Okay, fair enough, right? But where's that respect for other mothers who are have lost their lives, for other parents, for other people? Um, and so that's the thing about decorum is that when you look at it, it, you know, unless you look at the power that white supremacy has. Um, it seems like it's arbitrary, but it's not arbitrary. It's, you know, certain people get benefits that other people don't. And decorum is one way of 
um, almost shutting down conversation. There is a legitimate conversation to be had about what the British Empire has done and how the British Empire has benefited and how the people who live in Great Britain today are still benefiting from the money made off of colonialism in South Asia, colonialism in uh, pretty much all over the world, in the Americas and Africa, and the enslavement of millions of West African people. I want to take us back to two things that you just said. You just offhandedly referred to the views of Winston Churchill and others that viewed South Asians and non-white. Um, and you didn't use the word Christian, but I want to I want to bring it up. They're they're the sat the word savage, civilized. These were mm-hmm. terms that were used often to describe. Uh, the peoples of of countries that were colonized and mm-hmm. that were seized, and they were not bloodless, as you you're talking yeah. about. But the stories of the blood that was spilled and the the harms that were done are often not included in the chapters of of history that we read today. And I want to talk a little bit about the role that religion played in that, because after all, we like to explore beliefs. As a historian, as an assistant professor of religious studies. Can you study Christianity's rise without looking at empire? No, I I don't believe you can do that. I don't think you can study any religion without looking at uh, where the nodes of power lie and um, the ways in which a tradition deals with um, oppression and the ways in which they deal with liberation. You know, and I think when you look at Christianity specifically, the Protestantism of, of the British Empire um, and the Anglican Church, you can't look at the, the amount of money they have, uh, their power, um, without looking at colonialism because missionaries were often a part of the colonial enterprise, you know, to bring civility, getting back to civility, <laughs> being civility to the savages um, of the British Empire, whether that was um, in the Americas, whether it was in um, in Africa, right? David Chittister has written a great book about called Savage Systems, where he uh, talks about how missionaries would assign religion to a tribe if they were cooperative, right? In quotes, cooperative, or say that they had no religion and call them savage if they were not cooperative with the crown. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is would the tribe succumb to uh, British colonial rule or would they not? And if they you did, know, and, how would they be described? If they had their own animist practices or their own? Yes, they okay. would be described as religious and um, able to be, quote unquote, tamed or converted and having religion was one sign of civilization, of culture. And so this was one way to deny them humanity. It raises another question for me, if that's the case. How did colonialism shape our global understanding of religion? Well, can I give you another example? Of course. Uh, from in, from South Asia that might uh, help a little. I think this idea that you could only belong to one religion and that religion is a 
major center part of one's identity. You can see uh, really clearly when you look at census reports uh, from British South Asia. And so if you look at like the early 1820s, 1840s, they would ask people, um, what is your religion? And the response would be, oftentimes, uh, Hindu Mohammedan. What does that mean? I, I guess people believed both. They were Hindu and they were also Muslim, mm. you know, and that wasn't a contradiction because the lines between religions are often more malleable and more porous than I think we like to imagine. But to the British who are very much into categorization, how do you divide and conquer a population in North India saying that they're Hindu Mohammedan, right? And then when you look at later uh, census questions, it changes from which religion are you to what religion are you? Are you Hindu? Are you Muslim? Mm. Are you Sikh? Are you Christian? And you have to answer one. And so when you have to, when you go from a culture that um, has multiple answers for what religion you are to have only allowing one religion, you're, you're creating community lines that didn't necessarily exist in the same way before. I'm not saying that Hindus and Muslims were best friends in pre, you know, British colonial India. I guess what I'm saying is that their understanding of who they were and how they practiced and how they worshipped and what they thought was a little bit more complicated than just being one religion. When we talk about colonialism and empire, you used the expression a moment ago to divide and conquer. Can you just describe that for listeners who may not be familiar with what the, they've heard it, but may not know the origins of it in the context of colonialism? Right. Well, what, what I mean by divide and conquer is you take a population and you create havoc among them so that you can more easily control them. That is... Um, a, a tactic that the British used in in multiple ways, but I think partition is probably the best example of that because, yes, there are issues between Hindus and Muslims, but the ways in which the British divided Pakistan and India, uh, East Pakistan and then West Pakistan, and then later that becomes East Pakistan becomes Bangladesh. The way they did it, they literally drew a line through villages, through homes, mm -hmm. right? Uh, nobody knew where they were going to be. It was such a tense time. People did not know what side of the border they belonged to. And it was all done not according to, to culture or language. It was done according to religion, mm. right? And... Um, how do you get a population more riled up? Uh, I, I, I don't know. You know, when you look at the ways in which that kind of fault line of partition happened, um, it, it, it really was, um, it really was cruel, I think. And also very intentional by the British. They did not want to leave India and Pakistan being a success. They wanted to leave it a mess. And I, I think I think they succeeded in that. What I hear you saying is that if you look at the colonial and empire building process, 
finding the differences and then exacerbating those differences by creating different processes or legal processes and systems to bring to the fore those differences. It's almost like, and what I, and what it kind of, kind of brings to mind in the current context is that I have heard for the last 25 years, criticism about identity politics being a construction of the quote unquote left. But Mm -hmm. what I'm hearing you say is that identity politics may in fact have its origin story in empire building. Oh, for sure. And what I would say um, is that what colonialism does is it comes into a cultural context and it exacerbates all the very conservative elements in a society, right? Um, and then it it uh, mutes or basically destroys anything progressive as well. Um, so any kind of movement for Hindu-Muslim solidarity, any kind of pro-feminist movements that were occurring in South Asia got muted in favor of these more conservative ideologies. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. After the break, my conversation with Dr. Srina Nikita Gandhi continues. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm talking with Dr. Srina Nikita Gandhi. She's an American historian and religious studies professor at Michigan State University. She studies the relationships between culture, religion, and the influence of colonialism. As we get back to the conversation, she explains where her interest in this area of study began. I was always very fascinated by religion because of my grandfather, uh, my father's father. He um, just 
was always talking to me about spirituality. And he later in life became a, a Buddhist teacher of Vipassana meditation and um, was always talking to me about the acceptance that he felt in Buddhism that he never felt uh, in some of these other Hindu traditions, guru traditions that he followed. Uh, part of that was due to his mixed caste marriage, uh, which led to um, being outcasted, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Uh, but he would always talk to me about just God. Uh, is there a God? The multiplicity of gods in Hinduism, the multiplicity of, uh, you know, bodhisattvas in Buddhism. And uh, he really, part of why I do this is it keeps him with me, mm-hmm. you know. And um, in terms of where I specialize, I didn't specialize so much in uh, South Asian religions. I took one of my exam areas in Hinduism, but the American history part came from AP US history uh, at Okemos High School and a teacher by the name of Doug Collar, Dr. Collar. And he uh, just really ins- inspired me. And it, it, studying American history helped me understand my immigrant experience a little bit better uh, and also allowed me to I always say I have a critical love for the United States. You know, I, I love it. I love being here. I love my family. I love my community. Um, but the history part gives me an insight into how to understand the very bad parts as well as some of the good parts, but also helps me think through how we move forward. Mm. You just referenced that you're an immigrant. Just give us a little backstory on your immigrant story in this country. Yeah, well, so it's a bit unusual. People see me and often assume, oh, I must be from India, uh, but I'm not. I was born in London, and my mother's side of the family is Ugandan and Tanzanian. And my dad's side of the family, my dad was the only person in my immediate family to be born in a free India. Um, and my grandmother was born in Bombay, like my dad, and my grandfather was born in Karachi. In uh, which is now Pakistan. So uh, just, you know, it feels different to a lot of people to hear this story. But I think in the South Asian community, it's actually quite normative for us uh, to have these kind of multiple origin stories. At the outset, you talked about your own family history, hailing from different parts of the world, and that you were yourself born in London. As you look at the morning rituals that are unfolding, and we started off talking about some of the the debates that are happening, oftentimes online, this expectation of people demonstrating decorum and respect, what are some of the ways that you think people can facilitate or enter into this conversation? Well, I mean, I think um, to what I would say to people saying that we shouldn't have a debate or anything like that is that human beings are um, incredibly capable of nuance. You know, it's it's possible to be respectful Mm -hmm. to the family and to, you know, allow them this uh, time of mourning um, while at the same time, it's, it's, I think you're able to have a conversation of what should the monarchy look like going forward? And what responsibility does um, the monarchy have uh, towards the British people 
one, right? But also to all the people that they've benefited from, right? Uh, That's like an ethical moral question. Yeah. That the, that you're, it sounds like you're saying the state needs to wrestle with. I've been hearing, I've been hearing reparations as something that coming out of Barbados, in fact, just yeah. um, reflecting on the role that enslavement uh, and mm-hmm. the, you know, the murder and family separation and all of the horrific things that happen in a system of chattel slavery. Yeah. And so again, we go back to people were mourning the loss of their family in enslavement. And they weren't given that privilege to mourn. To this day, I don't know that any non-Black person has come to terms with the cruelty and the trauma and the generational issues that that has caused. So, yes, I understand we have to, you know, I'm, I'm very sorry for the Queen's death. I'm very sorry for her family. And yet what her ancestors have done has caused layers and layers and layers of privilege for her and her family. So I don't blame the people of Barbados or Jamaica for asking for reparations because they're still suffering due to those actions of her ancestors. Mm. In the case of South Asia, uh, it's said that the the British took $43 trillion dollars worth of resources. Mm. And you look at the current situation in Pakistan with the flooding and over 10 million people are displaced, thousands dead. And part of the reason that Pakistan is like this and has these issues is because of its colonial heritage. And even if you look at the situation in India, I should say that was colonized. You don't have India and Pakistan until after partition. But um, issues regarding uh, women, right? In South Asia, you have Dalits who have experienced thousands of years mm-hmm. of oppression um, based on the fact that they're seen as impure. And um, it's you do have this issue in not only the Hindu community, but also the Muslim and Christian communities as well. What you just described, the reality of this thousand-year-old system of caste that is about power, it is a reminder that even as you pose the what if question, what if uh, there was no British Raj? What if there hadn't been this colonial empire yeah. building? You're not ignoring the fact that cultures have can create systems separate yeah. from racial categories that are oppressive, that treat mm-hmm. its own members as inhuman. It's not that you're suggesting that the ability to oppress is a unique feature of one culture or one race. No, it is not. No, it's a universal, right? I mean, isn't that an important thing thing for us to say here is that there's it's just like extremism and religious practice. It's not Mm -hmm. no one faith tradition is immune from extremists. Yeah. When you look at religion, you have to look at the ways in which uh, they cultivate oppression, but also liberation. You know, and, um, and by and that, just, when you say yeah. cultivate liberation, are, what are you meaning by that? Are you saying that faith can be a body that loves and a body that oppresses? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at any religious tradition, they can be used to oppress, right? Uh, but also, there are parts of every tradition that talk about human liberation, human equality, uh, gender equality, um, and 
I think when you look at colonized spaces, those voices tend to get muted in the face of the more conservative ones that make the argument that a more conservative pathway is needed for preservation of tradition because colonialism threatens culture. And so people want to preserve it. I think if you look at South Asia, the tendency is to go towards more conservative parts of the tradition because of the onslaught of colonialism. Uh, And sometimes when you look at liberatory traditions, they're also criticizing the tradition towards change. People become almost more entrenched in their very oppressive positions because of colonialism. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess my what if is, could we have made more progress on the eradication of caste if it wasn't for colonialism, right? Could we have made more progress on Hindu-Muslim unity if it wasn't for colonialism? And again, those chances will never be realized because the British Empire took away those possibilities um, at the expense, not only of those cultures, but for their benefit. And their benefit has lasted hundreds of years. Mm. Is there an effort to try to decolonize religion? And what does that look like? Right. I mean, you do have um, certain scholars talking about decolonizing the university or decolonizing religious studies. Um, I tend to think overall that um, decolonization first has to start with, um, with the land with indigenous uh, leaders and and thinkers. And as much as I I love the academy, we're still a very colonial space uh, at a a space that that is very much entrenched in in white supremacy culture in many different ways, Uh, whether that's in our curriculums, our hiring practices, the ways in which we think about our relationship to the land and to indigenous populations. Mm -hmm. So I'm at Michigan State University. It's a land-grant institution. And one of the reasons that we have the land that we do, we have the university we do, is because land was taken away from indigenous people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think institutions are starting to think about grappling with that. But, you know, we're still at the stage of thinking about thinking about it (laughs) Anyways, when you start to confront systems like white supremacy, like caste supremacy, uh, like patriarchy, right? And you start to think, okay, how can we make things equal? That means that certain people are going to lose power and lose privilege. And that's very difficult to do, right? Uh, People don't like losing their power and their privilege. I'm glad there's a conversation going on about reparations about the possibility of abolishing the monarchy, you know, phase it out. (laughs) It sounds Uh, like you are not a monarchist. I am not a monarchist at all. The way I which I talk about empire in terms of the United States is that um, we benefited from free and forced enslaved labor. uh, And we also benefited from free land that was uh, taken away from indigenous people Uh, And that's how we built our wealth. And so all of the power and the privileges that we have as being Americans um, are due to imperial policies, you know. And if you look at something like our Declaration of Independence, (coughs) 
Thomas Jefferson uses the term Indian savages because he doesn't like that the British are um, are negotiating contracts with uh, sovereign Indian nations uh, because it impedes his access and uh, to the land. So even our the story of why we have the Revolutionary War is is very much mired in empire and colonialism, um, settler colonialism, and so that's how I I mean I make it a point in all of my teaching to make sure that I teach that part of our history, mm. right? And I teach the ways in which um, we are who we are because of these policies. Will you be watching all the pomp and circumstance, the rituals and traditions um, in your home country? Um, maybe. (laughs) I don't don't know. Uh, I might. My dad has been watching. Has he? um, And so, and yeah, he's been like sending me clips. So I might watch some with him. My dad had an interesting reflection the day that we heard the news. And I asked him, I said, how do you feel? And he was he was wistful. I said, you know, I grew up with the queen. You know, yeah. I grew up with her. And I thank her for the marmalade. But I'm still frustrated over the enslavement and the robbing of jewels from and, and yes. resources from our country. And so it was an interesting reflection from him. And one yeah. that just got me thinking about it as as he was spreading orange marmalade on his morning toast. Sipping his yeah, chai. Yeah, th- that's the thing about being colonized people is that we have a love-hate relationship with the empire. Mm. Um, and uh, I fully acknowledge all the kind of privileges and uh, conveniences that colonialism and the empire have given me. But also, um, let's have that conversation <laughs> about reparations and maybe sending back some of those jewels on those crowns that you that you wear. Srina Nikita Gandhi is a historian of religion, race, and empire at Michigan State University. Her research demonstrates how American practices of yoga can be better understood within the broader history of structural racism in the United States. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. Stay with us. 